welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Um, if, those, if, if there are those of you who are here this morning who have perhaps not been here over the last few weeks or you're visiting with us, uh, we've been in this book, an unusual book, Ecclesiastes, following Solomon as he searches for the meaning of life. I started off by using a metaphor that C.S. Lewis uses when he talks about a fleet of ships being at sea. And he says, in order for that particular fleet to be successful, there are really three things that need to be in order. Number one, the ships need to be in formation and not sailing all over the place so that they crash into one another. Number two, each individual vessel needs to be seaworthy or they will go all over the place and crash into one another. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly of all, they need to know why they're at sea in the first place. They need to have their sailing orders. And Lewis talked about those three things in terms of branches of ethics. He talked about the fact that all of the ships are in formation. That's social ethics, not crashing and banging into the people that we live with, the people that we live around. The second one was each individual vessel being seaworthy. That's individual ethics. The third realm he called normative ethics, the reason we're at sea in the first place. And I talked about the fact that our culture, our postmodern culture, really is highly focused on the first. We are highly focused on social ethics. The driving force of our society is don't collide, don't bang into one another, be tolerant of other people. We are not so concerned about social, uh, individual ethics. What we say is we really don't care what you do behind closed doors as long as it doesn't impact on social ethics. So we're really only interested in personal ethics as it relates to social ethics. And when it comes to normative ethics, we haven't got a clue. Of all of the societies that, uh, and civilization that our world has seen, Western civilization is the first and only civilization that can't tell its people what they're here for. We have no idea why we're here, what our sailing orders are. And, and Solomon and the book of Ecclesiastes is such a, such a relevant book to our postmodern culture. So we're following Solomon as he tries desperately to find out his sailing orders. What on earth are we on this earth for? So he's on a search, and we noted it's a secular search. It's done under the sun. That's one of the key words of the book of Ecclesiastes. And it basically means this search is being undertaken without reference to God, without an acknowledgement of divine revelation, or without really any um, acknowledgement of spiritual realities at all. Solomon has experimented. We followed him as he went down the pathway of enlightenment, the life of the mind. We followed him as he went down the pathway of enjoyment, uh, the life of the body, wine, woman, and song. And we noted that he came back from those journeys saying that they were pointless, that they were fruitless, that they were futile. He talks in chapter 3 about being trapped in the relentless iron-like grip of time and in the midst of just seasons that come and go with this relentless efficiency, he can't figure out the meaning and purpose of any of it. We saw a couple of weeks ago how he looked at our world, so relevant this morning, a world of evil and injustice, a world that cries out deep within it for things to be different than they are. 
And yet we noted that in an under-the-sun world with no reference to God and objective truth, there's actually no reason for our world to be any other way than it, than it actually is. And yet that, that's deeply dissatisfying to us all. We know intuitively that the way things are is not the way they should be. He complains bitterly that the places where there should be justice and equity, he finds corruption and injustice. He went to the palace, as it were, the corridors of political power. He looked in the law courts. He looked among leaders and government officials, and all he found was, was, was corruption and graft. When, when I was considering that message, you know, the fact that he went into the political sphere to try and find meaning, I, there was a portion of scripture that I left out in chapter 5. Very briefly, I'd like to comment on it this morning. So I'm going to read it with you. It's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Because having been in the palace, Solomon now towards, turns toward the temple. And this is what he says. What's your step when you enter God's house? Enter to learn. That's far better than mindlessly offering a sacrifice, doing more harm than good. Don't shoot off your mouth or speak before you think. Don't be quick, too quick to tell God what you think he wants to hear. God's in charge, not you. The less you speak, the better. Overwork makes for restless sleep. Overtalk shows you up as a fool. When you tell God you'll do something, do it now. God takes no pleasure in foolish gabble. Vow it, then do it. Far better not to vow in the first place than to vow and not pay up. Don't let your mouth make a total sinner of you. When called to account, you won't get by with, sorry, I didn't mean it. Why risk provoking God to angry retaliation? So Solomon, in his search for meaning, goes to the palace. He goes to the political uh, machine and says, is there anything honest? Is there anything meaningful here? He comes back saying, fruitless, pointless, all I found was graft and corruption. In this passage, he goes to the temple to see if there's anything that will answer his cry for meaning. He joins the throngs of people who are, who are hurrying to church, as it were, and says, I'll go and see if I can find meaning and reality there. He goes, and when he comes back, he makes two observations, and these are the two observations coming out of that passage. Number one, there was a lot of ritual practice without understanding, and number two, there were rash promises without any commitment to follow through on what it was that was promised. And again, you see the unbelievable um, relevance of the book of Ecclesiastes because it seems that everything has changed and yet nothing is different. And if you were to ask postmoderns why they don't attend places of worship, I think those two things would be figure very high on their list of the reasons they stay away. Firstly, that ever-present danger that religious observances that perhaps were once meaningful but somehow over time have devolved into practices that are really merely habitual and now lack the dynamic that was there originally. So what we have is ritual without reality. And Paul talked about that in the New Testament, the form of godliness, but there's no power associated with it. And when religious practices reach this point of ritual without reality, it's indistinguishable from superstition and magic. It's a kind of obsessive compulsive disorder with a religious twist. We have to do it that way. Well, why? Having a clue, but just, just do it that way. We don't want to upset God. 
Well, listen, an outsider, as Solomon is in this situation, sees that for what it is. It's ritual without reality. He calls it foolish people offering foolish sacrifices. Solomon observes people going through religious observances that don't shape their life in any way, shape, or form outside of the place of worship, and he wants no part of it. The second thing that Solomon observes when he goes to the temple to see if there's any kind of meaning is people saying or perhaps singing lots of things that they clearly don't mean. Prayers that are being prayed that were no doubt eloquent and wordy, but that were also equally completely empty. Vows that were being made, perhaps marriage vows, for example, where people stand before God and say, forsaking all others, I will stay true to you. In good times and in bad times, in sickness and in health, in times of plenty and during times of privation, I will stay with you until death parts us. And Solomon observes that they clearly didn't mean that. That's not what they were really saying. What they were really saying is, I'll stay with you until you fail to meet my expectations or until somebody else comes along that I'm more attracted to. Solomon sees the emptiness of this. Promises made to God in times of sickness or in times of need or in times of ill health and danger and then promptly forgotten. Solomon says, I've seen people make promises like that never carry through on them. This is hypocrisy, and I want no part of it. You're very quiet this morning. I think one of the biggest barriers to postmoderns when it comes to places of worship is this perceived issue of the hypocrisy of those of us who attend where they observe and they say, you know what? They say one thing, but they do another. Here Solomon is saying, I went to the house of God with those who go to church in the hope that I might find some answers to my questions, but what I saw turned me away. Foolish people making foolish sacrifices and lots of words spoken, but very little reality in them. It is a sad and often repeated story. So, Solomon's gone down the road of enlightenment. He's gone down the road of enjoyment. He's crying out for justice in a world of evil and injustice. He goes to the places of power and says, is there meaning there? No. He goes to the place of worship. Is there meaning there? He turns away. No. He looks at the accumulation of wealth as a possible way of finding meaning. And we looked at that last week. There are seven observations he makes, and I'm just going to read them out to you. He says, the more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the more people will come after it. The more you have, the more worry it creates. The more you have, the lonelier you become. The more you have, the more harm it can do to you when you hold on to it. The more you have, the more you have to lose. And the more you have, the more you have to leave behind. We talked about that last week. He finds that road, the pursuit of wealth, to be futile and a dead end. And in chapter 6, Solomon hits rock bottom. And he says, I wish I'd never been born. A stillborn baby, he says, would be better off than I am. The first half of this book is deeply depressing and cynical. Now we come to chapter 7, and in chapter 7, very haltingly, he turns a corner. He turns back to the pathway of wisdom. 
very slightly, only slightly more positive than the first dark, dark chapters. It's not like suddenly the lights are on. It's not even close. But he haltingly turns back. There's a little progress. He's nowhere near home, but at least he's starting to take some halting steps now in the right direction. His observations lead him to a place where having looked at life and noticed that there are some ways of living that seem to have better outcomes than others. I've watched life, he says, and I do notice that over time, it seems that there is a better way to live. And in the first few verses of chapter seven, he uses the word better or the phrase, it is better at least five times. He's saying there is a kind of life that is better than its alternatives. And he goes into a series of Proverbs. Now, we're all familiar with Proverbs. Of course, Solomon was responsible for writing the book prior to this one, the book of Proverbs. Proverbs are a way of kind of distilling human experience into pithy, picturesque little sayings that are easy to remember. And every culture has its Proverbs. We've got a whole heap of them. If I asked for a few, you'd, you'd readily give them to me. L- look before you leap. A stitch in time saves nine. A bird in the hand's worth two in the bush. A kind of homespun wisdom and common sense that has developed out of human experience. Now, in his journey to find meaning, Solomon has tried various experiments. What he does here is he turns back to the wisdom of the ages. He's saying, I've tried enjoyment, I've tried enlightenment, I've tried money, I've looked everywhere, there's nothing. Maybe the generations before this have got something to teach me. Maybe I should look to, as G.K. Chesterton called it, the democracy of the dead. The people who have gone before me, have they found any meaning? Have they found something that's worth living to? So what he does is he tries to glean from the wisdom of earlier generations and Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 9 tells us that he brought together many proverbs. He starts looking at the wisdom of the ages and says, what can I learn? He pulls together many proverbs and Ecclesiastes 12 tells us that they were pointed words like goads and nails. Goads were the pointed sticks that shepherds used to to prod an animal to go in the right direction. Of course, nails with their pointed end allow things to be fixed. And he's saying, in these pointed sayings that have come through the wisdom of the generation, generation, is there something that, that we can learn? If we listen to such generational wisdom, can it guide us? Can it secure us? Can it give us meaning? Perhaps he says we don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's better to learn from the experience of others rather than simply repeating the same mistakes ad infinitum. So let me read to you some of the Proverbs in chapter seven. Chapter 10, by the way, he goes back into you know, the, the Proverbs again, but these are the ones from chapter seven. I'm just reading the first 12 verses. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. You can see that he's still concentrating on the rather dark proverbs. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. 
The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of a wise man than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So here's a handful of Proverbs. Obviously, we don't have the time to uh, look at all of them in detail, but let me look at a couple and, and then see if we can see a thread that Solomon is trying to thread through this kind of Irish stew of Proverbs. In verse 1, it says, better is a good reputation than than a beautiful cologne or perfume. In the Hebrew, there's a kind of a wordplay that doesn't translate in the English. It's something like fair fame is better than fine perfume. What Solomon is doing there is he's looking at this proverb and looking at human nature, and he observes that every one of us wants to be well thought of and liked. And he says there are two, there are two ways to achieve that, the quick way and the slow way. He says the quick way is all about leveraging our external image. It's like having the right perfume or the right aftershave in the hope that somehow it will make an instant and good first impression. The slow way, he says, is about being a certain kind of person on the inside. It's about having a trustworthy character, about being a person of integrity. And he's saying, which is the best way of achieving the desired result of being well thought of and liked. Yeah, it's an incredibly postmodern dilemma. And we, for the most part in our culture, have definitively answered the question, which way is the best way? We have decided that the quick way is the best way. The quick way is, it's won the day in our culture. It's, in our culture, it's, it's all about image. And if you don't believe me, check out the adverts on TV the next time you're watching. How many of them suggest to you that the slow way of building a trustworthy character, a character of honesty and integrity, is actually the best pathway to success? I've never seen an ad like that. I doubt that you have either. Much more often you're told, wear this fragrance, use this toothpaste, Buy from this store and people will follow you. They will buy from you. They will accept you. They will make room for you. They will love you. We live in a culture that is totally given over to the external. It's all about first impressions, the, the right look. So we naturally lean to Botox, to cosmetic surgery, to gym-crafted bodies and to stunning wardrobes as the mean to gain that first advantage. Solomon says... I've watched and observed all of this. And in my considered opinion, the slow way is a much better way to live than the fast way. And a good name is better than expensive ointment or perfume. The good character wins over the first impressions because the reality is image is short-term and ultimately very hollow. But the substance of a good character, Solomon says, is better in the long run. Now, 
As you look through these Proverbs in chapter seven, you'll notice there's a common thread that runs through, as I say, this Irish stew of, of subjects. And the main thought seems to be, to be that it's better to live life having a long view. Consider the long-term consequences, not just the short-term view and results. So he develops that idea in chapters, uh, in verses 1b right through 4, by suggesting that actually, as much as we try and avoid it, sorrow is better in the long run than frivolous rejoicing. Going to a funeral, he says, can be more instructive and better for you in terms of your character than rejoicing at endless birthdays. Now, when you read this, it sounds like Solomon's still in the depths of depression and is speaking out of his morbidity. And, and the reality is there's some truth in that. He is still depressed, but he is making a valid observation. In fact, just yesterday I was reading Urban McManus's book, The Artisan Soul, and he, he makes this comment. He says, the darker you are, the more honest you are. Optimism can be superficial. Despair is what honesty looks like. Here's this man in despair being very, very honest, and he's suggesting paradoxically that death has more to teach us about life than birth, and it's accompanying festivals. Now, I'm not suggesting we live a morbid life and suggesting to you that festivities are wrong. The truth is, as we've seen, you need all of the seasons of life to make us well-rounded. As much as we enjoy festivities, however, they don't usually encourage us to ask the right questions or to develop the right character. I think of an incident in Jesus' ministry as it's recorded in John chapter 2, particularly in the J.B. Phillips version. It records the reaction of the people to Jesus' ministry in the very start of his ministry, his first public Passover, and it says in chapter uh, 2 verse 23, in Jerusalem at Passover time, during the festivities, many people believed in him. Now, listen, it doesn't take a prophet to observe that no great commitment is required during festivities. All of us know that commitment is developed and tested during the darker seasons, during the famine seasons, not, not the festival times. Anybody who's been married for any length of time will tell you that commitment isn't required when everything's going wonderfully well. Those vows that you made get tested when things are tough, when famine times come. That passage, by the way, goes on to say Jesus, on his side, didn't trust himself to any of them. He understood human nature. He saw the rejoicing, the enthusiasm at the festivities, but he knew the fickleness of the crowd. He knew that the enthusiasm of the festivities would pass, and with it, most of the commitment would also go. And John chapter 6, just a little bit further on, records how most of them no longer followed Jesus. Happy in the festivities, but when the hard times come, they bail. Now listen, we should be glad of and grateful for the good seasons and the festivities and the wonderful joy they bring to us. But we should be wise enough to also know that the happiness of those times is somewhat superficial. Derek Kidner in his commentary on Ecclesiastes says this, at birth and on all festival occasions, the general mood is excited and expansive. It's no time for dwelling on life's brevity or on human limitations. We let our fancies and hopes run high. At the house of mourning, on the other hand, the mood is thoughtful and the facts are plain. And if we shrug them off, it's our fault. 
we have no better chance of facing them. So Solomon observes that you can, you can gain more wisdom and make more pro, uh, progress in character development from one good funeral than you can from a whole year full of birthdays. That's the thread that runs through all of these Proverbs. Take the long view on life, not just the short-term enjoyments. It's better to consider long-term consequences, he said, rather than just get immediate results from festive seasons. That message, by the way, runs through the whole of the Bible. The fool, like Esau in Genesis chapter 25, who was concerned for immediate gratification. He comes back from a hunting trip. He's famished. He sees that his brother Jacob has a lentil stew cooking. And uh, he says, give me some of your stew. Jacob, being the crafty character he is and knowing the kind of person that Esau was, says, I'll give it to you if you'll give me your birthright. Esau, Esau says, I'm starving. Come on, give me some of that stew. Give me your birthright. Esau goes, what the heck? What use is a birthright to me when I'm hungry? And he just sells it right there on the spot for a plate of lentil stew. Listen, if you're going to sell your birthright, at least make it KFC. <laughs> you know, make it some kind of sinful moment. Lentil stew. Esau was the original postmodern existentialist. His motto, carpe deum, seize the day. Well, fine, seize the day, but not if you're saying to hell with your future. Solomon observes it's better to take the long view. A wise man, he says, considers the future rather than simply being overwhelmed by the immediate needs of the presence. Then, then he makes a comment, actually, in, that, in the Proverbs, and he says, it's stupid to live in the presence at the expense of the future, but the most stupid thing of all is to live in the past. In verse 10, he says, don't always be asking, where are the good old days? He said, wise folks don't ask questions like that. Again, unbelievably relevant. I noticed with the aging of the baby boomer generation, there has come to our society wave after wave of nostalgia. Now, the problem with nostalgia is it robs you of both the present and the future. That rose-tinted backward view on life the good old days. Hey, let me let you into a secret in case you didn't know it. The good old days weren't that good. Nostalgia about the good old days was a myth. No one thought we were living in the good old days when we were back there. Anyway, as comedian Les Dawson says, the way prices are rising the good old days the last week. The effect of this collection of proverbs is to inform us that it's actually better to take a long-term view of where you are heading. Given that that's true, Solomon observes that the time to prepare for your future is now. Some of you younger people who are sitting, you're thinking, oh, the future, the future will take care of itself. Solomon says, if you don't start preparing for your old age and your youth, it will be upon you and you will be unprepared. We always tend to think we've got plenty of time. You know, there's a proverb, and it's not in the Bible, but it, it probably could be or should be, that says, as the twig is bent, so the tree grows. What happens to a sapling in its youth? The way that it is allowed to grow, ultimately, unless it is corrected by outside intervention, 
It will determine the way the tree grows, the bent of the tree. Let me tell you, the steps that you are now taking, whether you're in your teens, your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, the steps that you are taking now will posture you for your latter years. And there is a really sobering proverb that Solomon does include in Ecclesiastes. He goes further to say, as the tree falls, so shall it lie. Put those two things together. As the twig is bent, so the tree grows. As the tree falls, so shall it lie. Now, I've often used that passage, as a tree falls, so shall it lie, at funerals that I've spoken at. And I, and I do it to, to really speak to the idea that I hear so often at funerals where people in their language somehow indicate that death changes things rather than cements things. I have so often heard people make comments like, well, they will now be at peace. They've lived the life of a rascal, but somehow at death, now they will find some peace. Now they will be blessed. Now things will be different. That's the era of what's called universalism, that everybody at death will be given another chance and therefore pretty much everybody, apart from the absolutely stupid, will be saved. But let me tell you, the Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus didn't teach that. Jesus didn't believe that. Death doesn't miraculously change anything. It simply makes the direction of our living irreversible. As the tree falls, so it will lie. The direction of your living determines the direction of your destiny. Solomon observes that even in our youth, our destiny is being determined by the choices that we are presently making. And he's saying, take the long view on life. Now, now you've got to remember, as we've talked about all the way through, that Ecclesiastes is incomplete without the revelation of the New Testament and particularly the words of Jesus. Solomon is pre presenting us with the results of his observation. He's saying, look, I've looked at life and I do see that there is a better way to live. And he gives us the homespun proverbs, the generational wisdom. And it's good as far as it goes. It's generational wisdom. It has a proven track record. But then Jesus comes along speaking with a unique authority. And he says things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And the people were stunned by the authority with which he spoke. He wasn't simply regurgitating the homespun wisdom. He was saying, fine as far as it goes, but I am telling you something beyond that. Solomon was considering wisdom the wisdom of a long-term view of life, looking to old age. He was saying, I noticed that in old age, it's better if you have lived this way. But Jesus comes and says, this age is not the sum of the ages. You must look beyond this age to an eternal age. You need to live not just in the light of the fact that it will be better for you in old age if you live this way, but you need to look beyond old age into an eternal age, live in the light of eternity. This age is not the sum of the ages, it seems to me that Jesus was saying. And wisdom is to understand this and to make sure your life is being prepared for an eternal age. Solomon, in this part of his journey, is groping his way toward wisdom. He's tried enjoyment. He's tried enlightenment. He's tried wealth. He's gone to the palace. He's gone to the temple. Here, haltingly, he steps back and says, as I observe life, I notice that it is better if you live in a certain kind 
of way and he's groping for wisdom. But that groping is done under the sun and the best thing he can do, as I say, is come up with this homespun wisdom and good common sense. But it's a perspective that can't go all the way to the goal. The New Testament comes on the scene and says, yes, wisdom is a better way to live. Yes, you need to live with the long view. Those things are true. But wisdom isn't found in homespun observations. Wisdom ultimately is found in a person. In the same way that truth isn't just some objective ethereal reality out there. Wisdom and truth are found in a person. Jesus said, I am the truth. And I wonder that Paul actually didn't have Solomon in mind, didn't have the philosopher of Ecclesiastes in mind when he penned these words, when he said, for consider, what have the philosopher, the writer, and the critic of this world to show for all their wisdom? You know, you could have stopped right there, put brackets and said, they've come up with some good common sense. They've come up with some good proverbs. They've come up with some good pointed sayings that maybe can help you in terms of the way you live toward your old age. Close brackets, end of story. But Jesus, Paul then goes on to say, has not God made the wisdom of this world look foolish? For it was after the world and its wisdom failed to know God that he in his wisdom chose to save all who would believe by the simple-mindedness of the gospel message. For the Jews ask for miraculous proofs and the Greeks for an intellectual panacea, but all we preach is Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and sheer nonsense to the Gentiles. But for those who are called, whether Jews or Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this is really only natural for God's foolishness is wiser than men and his weakness is stronger than men. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. Solomon's halting steps turn toward wisdom. The New Testament focuses that wisdom right down with laser-like power to say the wisdom is found in a person. The homespun wisdom of taking the long view is right as far as it goes, but that long view doesn't go far enough. It has to go into the eternal realm. The way you are living now is bending the sapling. And unless there is an external uh, intervention that could possibly turn that around, your destiny is sealed and as the tree grows and falls, so shall it lie. The gospel says, I can turn that around. In a moment, if you come to believe the provision of God, the wisdom of God, the truth of God in the person of Jesus, your life can be changed and your eternal destiny can be set and the twig can be reset by the power of the Holy Spirit in this present life and a life can be turned around and changed. That's the wisdom of the New Testament. Solomon kind of went in that direction, but couldn't go all the way, didn't have the revelation. You and I do, we have the New Testament. And the search under the sun, whether it's down the road of enlightenment and whether you're trying to stack degree on degree or whether it's down the road of enjoyment and for you at this moment it's wine, woman and song or whether you are down the road of building a career and making a fortune. Solomon, having gone down those roads and from the top of the heap as the wisest man, the wealthiest man and the man who had all of those other things at his disposal says it's not the way to go. 
It will never bring you the things that you long for, those deep intuitive longings that you have for justice and for truth and for wisdom. They are found in a person. They're found in Jesus. That's wisdom. That's the wisdom of the New Testament. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.